Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, part two of The Pharisee Phenomenon. In part one, we talked about what constitutes a Pharisee. We talked about the Pharisees in Jesus' day, the fact that the Pharisees were the one group of people that Jesus absolutely could not abide, and how he called them out publicly and repeatedly on what he saw as their self-righteousness, their over-focus on the minutia and the outward performances of their religion, and that they used their religion in order to marginalize and look down on and judge those that they considered less than, those that they labeled as sinners. And that whereas Jesus was very kind and loving and supportive to those that the Pharisees saw as sinners, he did not have the same feelings towards the Pharisees. I then told several stories of my own experience in the church in which I encountered different degrees and elements of Phariseeism, and also some stories where I encountered exactly the opposite. We then began looking at different examples of Phariseeism in the leadership of the LDS Church. The first two things that we talked about at that time were, number one, the large plush seats that the general authorities sit in at General Conference. And we compared that to when Jesus called out the Pharisees for loving the chief seats at the synagogues and how that was not a good thing in Jesus' book. We then looked at the wearing of white shirts in the LDS Church and how that has gone from being a suggestion by the general authorities to something that is basically required among the membership of the church, at least the male membership of the church, to the point where not only do deacons, teachers, and priests wear white shirts when passing the sacrament, and not only do the leaders of the church wear white shirts, but also all members of the church who are male are expected to wear white shirts when they come to church. That has become associated with righteousness. It has become associated with the appropriate way to dress when we go to church. We then compared the LDS wearing of white shirts to church with what Jesus had to say to the Pharisees that they also had taken to wearing certain articles of religious clothing in order to broadcast to the public how righteous they were. That it wasn't so much the articles of clothing that they wore that Jesus objected to, but the fact that they did it to be seen of men so that other men would know how righteous they were. So those were the first two examples that we gave of Phariseeism in the LDS Church today. We're going to continue today with the rest of the examples. I told you that there were 12 examples that we will cover. Now we're to example number three. And example number three, like the white shirts, also has to do with what we wear in order to broadcast our righteousness, our conformity, our obedience. And this next example applies not only to the men, but also to the women. It involves earrings and tattoos. I think that most Mormons will remember that President Hinckley in General Conference of 2000 gave a talk in which he strongly advocated that men not wear earrings and that women, although they could wear earrings, were confined to one pair of earrings. More than that was not righteous. More than that was inappropriate. And in the same talk, he discouraged either men or women in the church from getting tattoos. Here is President Hinckley speaking on the subject. Play the tape. It is sad and regrettable that some young men and women have their bodies tattooed. What do they hope to gain by this painful process? 
Is there anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy in having unseemly so-called art impregnated into the skin to be carried throughout life all the way down to old age and death? They must be counseled to shun it. They must be warned to avoid it. The time will come that they will regret it but will have no escape from the constant reminder of their foolishness except through another costly and painful procedure. I submit that it is an uncomely thing, and yet a common thing, to see young men with ears pierced for earrings, not for one pair only, but for several. They have no respect for their appearance. Do they think it clever or attractive to so adorn themselves? I submit it is not adornment. It is making ugly that which was attractive. Not only are ears pierced, but other parts of the body as well. Even the tongue, it is absurd. <laughs> we, the First Presidency and the Council of the Twelve, have taken the position, and I quote, that the Church discourages tattoos. It also discourages the piercing of the body for other than medical purposes, although it takes no position on the minimal piercing of the ears by women for one pair of earrings. So not only does President Hinckley state as the president of the church that men should not wear earrings and that women should wear only one pair, he also quotes a statement from the First Presidency and the Council of the Twelve to the same effect. Now I want to tell you a story once again from my experience at the Missionary Training Center, which illustrates why it is that a suggestion or a recommendation from a general authority as to what to wear or how to act, when that recommendation is associated with righteousness, it is something that over time everybody tends to get in line with. And this helps explain why in 1972 men attending the general priesthood session of conference wore a variety of colored shirts Today, they wear only white. This is something that takes place over time, and here's how it happens. As I said before, I went to Japan on my mission, which meant I spent two months at the Missionary Training Center in Provo, Utah, and we had classes every morning, every afternoon, and every evening, except for Sundays and P-Days, but we were in those classes all the time. And at the beginning of the class, we would have an opening prayer, and at the end of every class, we would have a closing prayer. During the classes, we would be seated at our little desks in one small room with our teacher at the front. And when we gave the closing prayer, we would all stay seated in our desks. That is, we would all stay seated except if one person got out of their desk and knelt on the floor. Because if one person got out of their desk and knelt on the floor for closing prayer, it was incumbent upon everybody else to also get out of their desks and kneel on the floor. The person who is kneeling on the floor is setting a higher example of righteousness for the rest of the class. And even though it would be okay to sit in your desk to pray, if everybody else sat in their desk to pray, as soon as one person kneels, now everybody else has to get out of their desk and kneel. We even laughed about it at the MTC, that if someone kneels, everybody has to kneel. But this is the way that Phariseeism can become widespread throughout the church. If one person sets an example of what is generally considered to be more righteous behavior, 
then everybody else feels compelled to conform to that example. In the same way, white shirts have become the norm in the LDS culture. And that is because, as we have seen from the quotes that I have given, wearing a white shirt has become associated with righteousness. It has become associated with purity. It has become associated with the appropriate thing for men to wear to church. And therefore, over time, all men have come to wear white shirts to the point where, as I said before, if you go to church and you wear something other than a white shirt, you are doing so consciously and you are doing it to make a statement of some sort and you do it knowing that you will not be fitting in and that other people will be looking at you sideways for wearing something other than a white shirt. The same thing has happened with earrings after this announcement by President Hinckley and tattoos as well. But tattoos can be covered more by clothing than earrings can. The earrings are out there for everybody to see. So earrings became associated with righteousness and a woman who wore one pair of earrings, or no earrings, but one pair of earrings was following the prophet's counsel, was being righteous, but if a woman wore more than one pair of earrings, she was, by definition, not being righteous. And this is where Elder Bednar, at a BYU devotional, May 10th, 2005, tells a story about a young man who was going to get married to this woman, but she had more than one pair of earrings, and she didn't remove the extra pair even after President Hinckley gave his talk in 2000. And because of that, because she wore more than one pair of earrings, she was seen as unrighteous. And she was seen as unrighteous to the point where it was the proper thing for this young man to do to call off his plans to marry this young woman, even though he was very much in love with her and would have married her otherwise. Play the tape. Sister Bednar and I are acquainted with a returned missionary who had dated a special young woman for a period of time. This young man cared for the young woman very much, and he was desirous of making his relationship with her more serious. He was considering and hoping for engagement and marriage. Now, this relationship was developing during the precise time that President Hinckley counseled the Relief Society sisters and young women of the Church to wear only one earring in each ear. The young man waited patiently over a period of time for the young woman to remove her extra earrings but she did not take them out. This was a valuable piece of information for this young man, and he felt unsettled about her non-responsiveness to a prophet's pleading. For this and other reasons, he ultimately stopped dating the young woman because he was looking for an eternal companion who had the courage to promptly and quietly obey the counsel of the prophet in all things and at all times. The young man was quick to observe that the young woman was not quick to observe. So Elder Bednar concludes that story by saying the issue was not earrings. Well, what he means by that is that the issue was that she was not quick to observe the counsel of the prophet of God and follow exactly what he had to say, even down to how many earrings she wore. But frankly, the issue was earrings, Elder Bednar. Let's look at it this way. Let's say that the president of the church had never made that statement back in 2000, that President Hinckley had never given that talk, or that the First Presidency and the Council of the Twelve had never weighed in on the issue as quoted by President Hinckley. Let's say it was just never addressed in the church, how many earrings a woman could wear. If it had never been addressed, it would never have been an issue 
for this young man, and he would have gotten married to this young woman, and hopefully they would have lived happily ever after. But because the leaders of the church chose to make an issue out of how many earrings a woman could wear, that's why it became an issue. So really, Elder Bednar, the issue was the earrings. And the reason the issue was the earrings is because the church leaders decided to make earrings an issue. So as soon as leaders of a church decide to make an article of clothing or jewelry an issue, it becomes an issue. And if we do not conform to their recommendations, to their advice, to their counsel, then we are seen by other members of the church as less righteous, just as happened in this story recounted by Elder Bednar. And the other side of that equation is that when we follow the counsel that is given, we are more righteous. And that puts us in a position to be able to sit in judgment upon those who do not follow that counsel. We then become part of that inner ring. We are part of the group that follows the advice of the prophets. And we can therefore judge those who do not, even when that judgment means I'm not going to get married to you. And even though if you had worn only one set of earrings, we would have gotten married as planned. One other thing I want to mention about the same talk given by Elder Bednar in 2005, he tells another story that does not have to do with earrings, but has to do with standing while praying in the presence of other general authorities. And this may give us a hint into his psyche and why it is that Elder Bednar seems to think it is so important that all the members of the audience, wherever he's speaking, that they all stand when he comes into the room. Now that much is pretty much across the board for all apostles. The audience is expected to stand when they come in, and if they do not stand, they will be motioned to stand when an apostle comes in the room. Elder Bednar takes it even a step further, and he insists that everyone remains seated after the meeting is over until he stands. So once he stands, then everybody can rise. Now, once again, this is an example of the Phariseeism I'm talking about. It's pharisaical enough to have everybody stand when you come into the room and to motion to them to stand if they aren't standing already. That alone is a sign that an apostle is better than everybody else in the church because everybody else has to stand when an apostle comes into the room, but they don't have to stand when a non-apostle comes into the room. But Elder Bednar takes that a step further. Remember this hyper-religiosity of the Pharisees and the idea that you take whatever the standard is, no matter how extreme, and you up it a notch. Well, Elder Bednar has upped it a notch by apparently insisting that not only people stand when he comes into the room, but that after the meeting is over, nobody stands until Elder Bednar stands. And if they do stand before he stands, he seems to get somewhat upset and go over and give them a talking to. There's video of these occasions when this has happened. I'm not doing this episode about Elder Bednar and his rule about standing and not standing, but I may someday in the future. The point I was trying to make is that Elder Bednar tells a story in the same talk, the one where he talks about the earrings, that may give an indication as to why it is that he is focused so much on whether you should stand or not when in the presence of apostles. And this story has to do with a fellow apostle at the time Elder David B. Haight of the Quorum of the Twelve. Here's the story from Elder Bednar that he told in 2005. Play the tape. During my years of service at Brigham Young University, Idaho, I also was blessed to participate in monthly board meetings. At the conclusion of the June 2004 board meeting, President Hinckley called upon Elder David B. Haight to offer the benediction. It was the last board meeting in which Elder Haight ever participated. 
At the age of 97, he had some difficulty as he tried to stand and offer the prayer. After several attempts to rise to his feet, President Hinckley courteously said, David, it is all right, suggesting, I believe, that it was permissible for Elder Haight to remain in his chair and offer the prayer. Elder Haight responded in a voice that was both firm and appropriate and said, President, I must stand. There was simply no way that mighty apostle was going to sit and pray in the presence of the First Presidency and his colleagues of the Twelve. And of greater importance, he was not going to sit as he communicated with his Heavenly Father. So once again, Elder Haight worked to stand and was successful. I shall never forget the spirit I felt as I listened to Elder Haight pray. I hope on that occasion I was quick to observe a powerful lesson about the dignity and the humility that should always attend our prayers. In my present calling, I am blessed by Elder Haight's example and feel a deep sense of gratitude for what I saw and felt and learned that day. Notice that he says, There was simply no way that mighty apostle was going to sit and pray in the presence of the First Presidency and his colleagues of the Twelve. So the message there is, if an apostle is not going to sit down and pray in the presence of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve, even an apostle who is suffering from severe physical and medical problems, then there's no way that you as non-apostles should be doing the same kind of thing. You should all be standing in the presence of a member of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. And Elder Bednar gets to tell this story about Elder Haight in support of Elder Bednar's position about standing and not standing in his own presence. Example number four of Phariseeism in the LDS Church has to do with the Word of Wisdom. Now, once again, this podcast is not about the history of the Word of Wisdom, so I'm going to go over that history very briefly to make the primary point that I'm trying to make regarding the Word of Wisdom and its association with Phariseeism in the LDS Church. I think we all know that the Word of Wisdom, section 89 in the Doctrine and Covenants, talks about not drinking hot drinks, and that after the revelation was given at some point, hot drinks became interpreted to mean coffee and tea, and the Word of Wisdom went from being a recommendation to being a commandment. Now, the Word of Wisdom actually says it is not by way of commandment or constraint. But by the 1920s, Heber J. Grant, the president of the church, decided that language was incorrect and made it a commandment on the members of the church. He made it a requirement of following the Word of Wisdom to be baptized into the church and further made it a requirement of following the Word of Wisdom to be admitted into the temples of the church. As I said, the Word of Wisdom went from a recommendation to not drink hot drinks to being interpreted to mean don't drink coffee and tea and then it became further interpreted to mean don't drink Coca-Cola or at least caffeinated Coke or any other kind of caffeinated beverage. You see, this is the kind of thing that happens over time in a pharisaical community. And the way that the word of wisdom has gone from hot drinks to coffee and tea to Coca-Cola to any caffeinated beverage is illustrative of the way that a pharisaical community ends up taking what is the original commandment, and in this case, not even a commandment, but takes a recommendation, makes it a commandment, and then starts adding things and making it more and more difficult 
to follow the commandment. The initial recommendation not only becomes a commandment, but more and more things get added to it in order to show greater and greater levels of righteousness. So even though the average Mormon is expected to not drink coffee and tea, if you are a super Mormon or a more righteous Mormon, then you don't drink Coca-Cola or any caffeinated beverage. Now you may remember the funny story about how back when Mitt Romney was running for president and word started getting around that Mormons didn't drink Coca-Cola and that sounded kind of funny to a lot of people. And so the media contacted BYU and asked them about this and said, why is it that you don't serve Coca-Cola in any of your vending machines on the campus? And the response from BYU was not what every Mormon who's been a member for 40 years like yours truly would have expected, which is that the leaders of the church have counseled us not to partake of Coca-Cola and caffeinated beverages. Instead, BYU said that there simply was a lack of demand for Coca-Cola among the BYU students. Now, that was a complete fabrication. Obviously, it was because the leaders of the church had recommended against drinking caffeinated beverages. But because they knew that this sounded too weird and because they knew this is going to be reaching a lot of people because of the publicity associated with the Mitt Romney campaign, BYU, which means the leaders of the church through BYU, they didn't say this without consulting with the leaders of the church who sit on their board of directors, they said, no, it's just because there's a lack of, uh, there's a lack of student body demand. And of course, right after that, some enterprising young student at BYU circulated a petition to have Coca-Cola put into the vending machines. Now, I don't know what happened as a result of that petition. Once the spotlight was off BYU, I expect things are back to normal and they don't have caffeinated beverages in their vending machines. I am open to being corrected on this if there's someone out there who knows any differently. But frequently, the church will say one thing to its members and a different thing to the public. And this was a classic example of that. I don't know if that is part of the Pharisee phenomenon, but it's certainly part of the Mormon experience. I want to tell you another story about Phariseeism in the church as it relates to Coca-Cola and caffeinated beverages. When I joined the church, our bishop was named Murphy. He was Bishop Murphy. He was a really, really nice man. I met with him a number of times. I was friends with his son, Steve Murphy. Well, this was in 1978 and 1979 that I knew Bishop Murphy and that he was the bishop of my ward. But 10 years later, in 1989, I moved back into the area in order to study for two months for the bar exam and during that time period I went to church and I found out that my Bishop Murphy had been promoted to stake president. So now it was stake president Murphy and I remember sitting with him one day and just chatting about old times and finding out from President Murphy that he did not like caffeinated beverages, that he thought that was against the word of wisdom. I mean pretty much everybody understood at the time that it was against the word of wisdom but that he had taken it upon himself to add Coca-Cola to the temple recommend interview questions. In other words, in his stake, every person who went to him or any of the other bishops under him for a temple recommend not only had to say yes or no as to whether they followed the word of wisdom, but also had to say that they did not drink Coca-Cola in order to get a temple recommend to go to the temple. So even though President Murphy was a wonderful guy, very, very likable, I still appreciate him very much. There was this element of Phariseeism in him that because he felt strongly personally about not drinking caffeinated Coke, when he became state president, he was in a position now to enforce that super religiosity on all the other members in his stake. And the way he chose to enforce it was by making it a requirement that they not drink Coke or they could not go 
to the temple. So this is an example of the hyper-religiosity of the Pharisees that allows us to judge others who are not as hyper-religious as we. Now, once again, this does not apply to all church leaders. Elder Uchtdorf, I think, is an example on the other side of the fence. He's the one who said, don't judge me because I sin differently than you. That is an anti-Pharisaical statement. And I think that Elder Uchtdorf is anti-Pharisee. And I don't know how it feels to be Elder Uchtdorf an anti-Pharisee when he is surrounded by Pharisees. All I know is that being an anti-Pharisee surrounded by Pharisees is a sure way to get yourself demoted from the first presidency. And if it were up to other members in the Twelve, I'm sure he would have been demoted further than that. When we become hyper-religious or pharisaical, we become extremely concerned about what we eat and drink. In other words, what we take into our body. And while health has its place, and while health is important, it was not the priority of Jesus. Jesus saw how, like what we wear, what we eat can too easily become the focus, as distinguished from what we do. In response, Jesus said, this is from Matthew chapter 15, Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. So the tradition of the elders was you wash your hands before you eat, but Jesus' disciples did not wash their hands before they ate. So there was this idea of if you don't ritually wash your hands before you eat, then what you eat is unclean and you're taking unclean things into your body. It's a very similar and parallel idea to the word of wisdom, that some things are not good for you. God has commanded you now to not partake of those, and if you do partake of them, you are somehow making yourself ritually and spiritually unclean. But what did Jesus say to that? And he called the multitude, this is Jesus, and he called the multitude and said unto them, Hear and understand, not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. So once again, Jesus, when he's confronted with this pharisaical tradition, he focuses on what is inside of us. What we eat is not important. It's what comes out of us that's important. It's what's in our heart that's important. It's how what's in our heart manifests itself in our words and in our actions to our fellow men that is important. What ends up going in is not important. It's what comes out that's important. And frankly, this saying by Jesus in the New Testament tends to fly in the face of all the emphasis that is placed on the word of wisdom, especially since the 1920s when it has been made a commandment. Paul the Apostle said a similar thing in Colossians 2 verse 16, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink. By the way, in the King James Version when it says meat, that is a word that simply means food. So what he's really saying is don't let anyone judge you in food or in drink. In other words, in what you eat or what you drink or in respect of a holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days. Don't let anybody judge you, because what you eat and drink is not important. That is Phariseeism. And Paul himself, being a Pharisee, knew what he was talking about. Jesus himself drank wine. In fact, one of the criticisms about Jesus was that he was a wine-bibber. That's from Matthew eleven nineteen, where Jesus says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, i.e. the Pharisees, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous, and a wine-bibber, and friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of her children. Jesus did drink 
wine. In fact, the first miracle that he performs, as recorded in the Gospel of John, is that he turned water to wine at a wedding. Now, some people want to excuse Jesus for his infractions of the word of wisdom. He should not have been drinking wine, but really, that was all they drank back then was wine because you couldn't drink the water because it was too filthy and you would get sick. Actually, there is some truth in that, but it's not completely true. They actually did drink water back then. In fact, the miracle at Cana is found in John chapter 2. If you go just two more chapters in the Gospel of John, you will find Jesus at Jacob's well, where he talks to the woman at the well. You remember the Samaritan woman. And do you remember what it was that Jesus asked her to do? Well, if you said he asked her to draw water from the well so he could have a drink, you go to the head of the class. So the question is, if Jesus couldn't drink water, and that's why he drank wine, why is he asking the woman at the well to draw him water so he could have a drink? Now that quote I gave from Matthew 11:19, where Jesus is called a wine-bibber, is also going to serve as our very next example because it goes on to say, not only do they call Jesus a wine-bibber and criticize him for drinking wine. Oh, and by the way, a wine-bibber, it's not a term we use often now, but a wine-bibber is not someone who just drinks wine. It's someone who drinks alcohol frequently. It's a person who drinks it a lot. That's what a wine-bibber is. And that's what the criticism was of Jesus. But that verse goes on to say that they criticized him because he was a friend of publicans and sinners. We're going to leave publicans to the side right now and just focus on sinners. This is one of the problems that the Pharisees had with Jesus, that he hung out with sinners. He was their friend. This was something the Pharisees found objectionable, that Jesus would spend time with those whom they considered sinners. Jesus even had a publican or a Jewish tax collector as one of his apostles. That was Matthew. The Pharisees felt that if they spent time with the sinners, they would somehow become ritually unclean, or they would be thought of as unclean. If other people saw them spending time with the sinners, then other people might think that the Pharisees agreed with them or condoned their sinning or supported them in some way. Now compare this with what Elder Dallin H. Oak said in 2006 in an interview that is still available on the church website at the Mormon newsroom. For those keeping track, this is number five on our list of 12 examples of Phariseeism in the LDS Church. The title is Interview with Elder Dallin H. Oaks and Elder Lance B. Wickman, Same Gender Attraction. If you Google that, you will come up with this interview on the church website. This was a staged interview between the Public Affairs Department and Elder Oaks and Elder Wickman. The Public Affairs Department would ask prearranged questions and then the church leaders would give pre-arranged answers. Here is one of those questions that was asked of Elder Oaks, and this has to do with the homosexual issue and the church's stance on homosexuality, and specifically, what should we do if we have a child who is homosexual and asked to come visit at the house with his or her partner? Here's the question. At what point does showing that love, you see Elder Oaks has already talked about how we need to love people, who are homosexual. And his answer here is going to show that that's really pretty much just a platitude. Here's the question again. At what point does showing that love for homosexuals cross the line into inadvertently endorsing behavior? If the son says, well, if you love me, can I bring my partner to our home to visit? Can we come for holidays? How do you balance that against, for example, concern for other children? in the home. So you can see how this is a staged question, but it puts the question right to Elder Oaks. 
And now whereas you might think that if Jesus were asked this question, he would give one sort of answer, here is the answer that Elder Oaks, a special witness of the name of Christ, gives instead. Quote, That's a decision that needs to be made individually by the person responsible, calling upon the Lord for inspiration. Now, Elder Oaks, Jesus would have said, you love them, you hang out with them, you take them with you, you don't let their personal sexual orientation affect how you treat them. You treat them as you would anybody else, and my God, these are your own children. This is your own son. Of course you're going to love him and take him in and support him and treat him the same way that you would any of your other children. But no, Elder Oaks first says that that's a decision that every parent needs to make themselves, and then he opens it wide for unchristlike behavior, discriminatory behavior, and dare I say it, Pharisaic behavior. Quote, I can imagine that in most circumstances, note that, he says most circumstances, the parents would say, please don't do that. Don't put us into that position. So this is what Elder Oaks thinks is proper and appropriate in most circumstances. No, you cannot come over to our house. You cannot visit with your partner. This is exactly the same criticism that the Pharisees had of Jesus because he hung out with the sinners. Even if we take it for granted that Elder Oaks considers a person who is living in a homosexual relationship to be a sinner, this is not what Jesus would do. This is the exact opposite of what Jesus would do. But on the other hand, it is exactly what the Pharisees in Jesus' day did and what they criticized Jesus for doing. Elder Oaks goes on, Surely if there are children in the home who would be influenced by this example, the answer would likely be that. There would also be other factors that would make that the likely answer. So this is the likely answer. No, you can't come over. Just don't even bother. And also, you want to play the victim card too. Please don't do that. Don't put us into that position. You see, we're the victim here because you're wanting to come over and visit your family. But Elder Oaks isn't done. I can also imagine some circumstances in which it might be possible to say, yes, come, but don't expect to stay overnight. Don't expect to be a lengthy house guest. Don't expect us to take you out and introduce you to our friends or to deal with you in a public situation that would imply our approval of your partnership. So here, Elder Oaks is saying the most likely and most common and most appropriate response would be, no, you can't come over. But it would also be possible to say, yeah, you can come over, but don't expect to be seen in public with us and don't expect us to introduce you to our friends. That has got to be one of the most pharisaical statements I have ever heard in my life. And personally, that buries the needle on my Pharisee meter. So at least in this one instance with this one apostle who is now the first counselor in the first presidency, we have him advocating a position that is in complete contradiction to what Jesus would say and is in complete harmony with what the Pharisees would say. Another thing about Elder Oaks' comment in the interview on the church website is that what he is advocating sounds suspiciously like shunning. If you are not going to allow someone and your own child over to your house for the holidays because they are in a gay relationship, that is shunning. If you are not going to take somebody out with you because you're afraid of being seen with them, especially when that person is your own child, that constitutes shunning. When you are not going to introduce somebody to your friends because you are afraid of how that will make you look, especially when that person is your own child, that constitutes 
shunning. So what Elder Oaks is advocating here in the form of shunning is very different from what Elder Holland said back in 2012. Back in 2012, Elder Holland was being interviewed by a reporter from the BBC, and the reporter had gone out and talked with some former members of the church who told him that they had been shunned as a result of leaving the church. The reporter followed up on this allegation in his interview with Elder Holland, and this is the question and answer that Elder Holland gave regarding the practice of shunning in the LDS Church. Compare what Elder Holland has to say in this BBC interview with what Elder Oak said in the interview available on the church website that we just quoted. Play the tape. Does the Mormon Church shun people who leave? No, no, of course we don't. We don't use that word and we don't know that practice. If I had a son this very day, given the office that I have and the visibility that means, if I had a son or a daughter who left the church or was alienated or had a problem, I can tell you I would not cut that child out of family life. Well, this is a remarkable thing. Elder Holland says in 2012 that if he had a child who left the church for any reason, that Elder Holland would not allow that to cause him to cut that child off from family life. And yet Elder Holland's fellow apostle, Elder Oaks, is advocating exactly that, not just for himself, but for members of the church. That they pray to God over the situation, but then he follows it up by saying that a likely answer in such a circumstance, when a child in a gay relationship or gay marriage wants to come home for the holidays, for Christmas, or go out with the folks for dinner, that the answer to that would be no. Don't put us in that position. It's not going to happen. That constitutes cutting the child off from the family. So here we're getting mixed messages from two fellow apostles in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, it is possible that they simply have two different opinions on the subject, but we have to remember it is in the same interview with the BBC that Elder Holland fudges the truth on other issues as well. So I'm somewhat suspicious that Elder Holland is not really representing his true inner thoughts. But let's look at another data point on this issue from another apostle, a fellow apostle of both Elder Holland and Elder Oaks. I am talking about Elder Christofferson, because in general conference a few years ago, Elder Christofferson also advocated shunning of family members. Now, this is the most unchristlike thing that a person could do, is to shun a family member, or anybody else for that matter, but to shun a family member, a child because of a disagreement over what that child says, how that child acts, or what that child believes. And yet here is Elder Christofferson in general conference teaching the membership that that is appropriate. And in fact, not only is it appropriate, it is sometimes desirable. He frames the issue as a conflict between love of the child and love of Jesus Christ, by which he actually means love of the church. And that if there's a conflict between the two, your love of Jesus has to trump, which may mean that your relationship with the child or other family member may be interrupted. That is the phrase he uses, that your relationship may have to be interrupted or your support or tolerance of the family member 
suspended. So that is the language Elder Christofferson uses to describe the practice of shunning family members in the LDS Church, a practice which he encourages, which he advocates, and which he teaches is appropriate under certain circumstances. And it seems obvious from the context in which he is speaking that this relationship must be interrupted because of bad behavior of the child, and it will remain interrupted until that child gets his act together, gets back on the straight and narrow, and starts behaving in a way that the parent deems is appropriate, by which is meant gets in line once again with the teachings of the church. Now, you will hear Elder Christofferson try and distinguish this shunning behavior by a parent to a child or to another family member as different from the love that the parent has for the child. The parent continues to love the child, only the parent has to shun the child. And actually, the reason the parent has to shun the child is because the parent loves the child so much. So at one and the same time, the parent's love for the church trumps the parent's love for the child, and that is why the parent has to shun the child. And yet, the parent is showing this great love for the child by shunning the child. This is a difficult argument to make, and it gets a bit complicated. So let's hear what Elder Christofferson has to say about it, and how he shows that the practice of shunning a child is actually what Jesus would do. Play the tape. The challenge we may confront is remaining loyal to the Savior and his church in the face of parents, in-laws, brothers or sisters, even children, whose conduct, beliefs or choices make it impossible to support both him and them. It's not a question of love. We can and must love one another as Jesus loves us. As he said, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you have love one to another. But the Lord reminds us, he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So although familial love continues, relationships may be interrupted. And according to the circumstances, even support or tolerance at times suspended for the sake of our higher love. And in reality, the best way to help those we love, the best way to love them, is to continue to put the Savior first. So a quick recap. First, Elder Oaks tells the church that Heavenly Father will most likely tell them to reject the request of a son to come home for the holidays with his gay partner. In other words, Elder Oaks says that shunning is okay, and in fact, the most likely answer that Heavenly Father would give to such a prayer. But on the other hand, Elder Holland tells the public he would never cut such a child off from his family. But on the other other hand, Elder Christofferson goes back to what Elder Oaks said and tells the church in general conference that interrupting family relationships with such a child is what Jesus would do. And in fact, shunning the child is the best thing we can do for them and the best thing we can do to show our love for the Savior. Once again, this is the aspect of the Pharisees that Jesus hated the most when church leaders would use their position to harm those they were supposed to care for and to do it in the name of religion. That the righteousness of the leaders trumped their responsibility to care for the marginalized in their own religion. In the name of Christ, modern LDS church leaders advocate treating others in a way Christ never treated others. 
and they do so as a manifestation of their devotion to Christ, and they advocate that the members do the same thing. Elder Christofferson says, we need to shun family members as a show of devotion to Jesus, that there are times when our love for Christ is at odds with our love for our family members, and in such situations, we must always choose our love for Christ, by which he, of course, means our love for the LDS Church. But that is a false dichotomy, and one of which Jesus would never approve, at least not the Jesus I read about in the New Testament. Perhaps Elder Christofferson should have quoted the Book of Mormon when it says that when we are in the service of our fellow beings, we are only in the service of our God, and that therefore to shun our fellow beings and our family members of all things, Elder Christofferson, our family members, is also to shun God. Maybe Elder Christofferson should have quoted Jesus from Matthew 25, verse 40, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. If you shun the least of the brethren, you shun Jesus. That's what he's talking about. You see, Jesus also talked about if you visit someone in prison, you are visiting me. We often gloss over that aspect of the parable of the sheep and the goats from Matthew 25, from which this other quote comes, that if you visit people in prison, then you also visit Jesus. It's the same thing. If you don't visit people in prison, then you don't visit Jesus. People who are in prison generally get there because they have done something wrong. These are sinners. These are people who have broken the law. And yet Jesus says, don't shun them, visit them. And if you do shun them, you're shunning me. If you visit them, though, you are visiting me. Those are the scriptures that you, Elder Christofferson, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, should have quoted, should have understood, should live your life by, and should teach the members of the church accordingly, that they should live by those words. So we're going to end part two of this podcast series dealing with the Pharisee phenomenon at this point. I am not sure that we have any other examples that are going to be more flagrant, more out of bounds, more calling for flags on the field than this example of shunning members of the church as a sign of love for God, love for Jesus, and as a sign of one's own piety and righteousness. We are not going to get an example better than that to show that modern leaders of the church are squarely in the camp of the Pharisees and squarely in the camp against the Jesus of the New Testament. And to the extent that Jesus Christ from the New Testament is leading the church today, the modern apostles appear to be dead set against him. Well, that's all the time we have for today, and we've only gotten up to number five in our list of 12. When it comes to discussing examples of Phariseeism in the LDS Church, there unfortunately appears to be a lot to talk about. I will have to be doing a part three of this podcast, and heaven help us if I have to do a part four. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.